Hey friends, today's scripture comes from Romans 4, 1 through 8, and 13 through 17 from the Common English Bible. So what are we going to say? Are we going to find that Abraham is our ancestor on the basis of genealogy? Because if Abraham was made righteous because of his actions, he would have had a reason to brag, but not in front of God. What does the scripture say? Abraham had faith in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Workers' salaries aren't credited to them on the basis of an employer's grace, but rather on the basis of what they deserve. But faith is credited as righteousness to those who don't work, because they have faith in God who makes the ungodly righteous. In the same way, David also pronounces a blessing on the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from actions. Happy are those whose actions outside the law are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Happy are those whose sin isn't counted against them by the Lord. Verse 13. The promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would inherit the world didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness that comes from faith. If they inherit because of the law, then faith has no effect and the promise has been canceled. The law brings about wrath, but when there isn't any law, there isn't any violation of the law. That's why the inheritance comes through faith, so that it will be on the basis of God's grace. In that way, the promise is secure for all of Abraham's descendants, not just for those who are related by law, but also for those who are related by the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have appointed you to be the father of many nations. So Abraham is our father in the eyes of God, in whom he had faith, the God who gives life to the dead, and calls things that don't exist into existence. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Urban Village. Good morning. It's good to see you all. I'm glad to be here. Been gone for a couple weeks. I met with my pastor at my home church this last week, and she just kind of looked, she goes, you're never really quite going to live or leave Urban Village, are you? <laughs> I said, yeah. I just looked at it with a big fat, probably not. It's a blessing to be here. Uh, it's great to see you all, and I'm really excited about this text today. We have a, it's a pretty deep text. If you were, as you were reading along, you're probably thinking, oh, I know what's coming, and I probably do, but I want us to look at this text in a very specific kind of way today. And so to get into that text, I'd like to just take a moment to pray. Can we do that? God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the opportunity to come together just to ponder the meaning of your grace and what that means in each of our lives. We thank you for this word that's been handed down to us from our ancestors as each generation, one by one, has tried to wrap their arms around the magnificence of what you want to do in our lives. So open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Open our ears. Help us to just try to reach inside this magnificent gift to see all the richness that lays inside. We bless your name this morning, and we thank you for the strength to stand before your people and the strength to listen to your word. We pray that you'll be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. During the Great Depression, Paramount Studios released a fantasy film, and it was called If I Had a Million. It had this goofy premise that just was timely enough to really work for the audience. 
it set up, this, the setup went like this. There's a dying tycoon who's so disgusted with his money-grubbing family that he just grabs a phone book and he points to eight names at random and each of those people inherits a million dollars. Kind of cool, huh? <laughs> then from there, the movie just wanted to see what would happen if you took average, everyday people and turned them into millionaires overnight. Some of the vignettes were comic revenge fantasies. You know the movie had to go there, right? <laughs> there are just people, one of my favorites, there's a, there's a guy who works, he's a klutz, and he works in a china shop, and his paycheck gets docked every week for everything he breaks. So the day he finds out that he's rich, you know what he does? He gets up and he goes to work, and anybody guess what he does? He walks in and just trashes the whole thing. There's another bit, a little more heart to it, right? There's a grandmother who lives in this oppressively strict retirement home. It's run by one of those characters you've always seen in the movies. They're always real skinny with pointy noses, and they're always, you know, always looking like this. No matter what this woman does, she's always breaking the rules. She's always in trouble. They won't let her listen to music. They won't let her play cards. They won't let her have any pets. The worst of it, they won't let her in the kitchen. Try keeping the grandmother out of the kitchen. So she finds out she's rich and she buys the joint. She throws all the rules away and before you know it, the place is a party house. It is crazy. They're having dances, they're throwing parties, everybody's playing bridge. Everybody's in the kitchen. Everybody's in the kitchen cooking. And then before you know it, there are stray cats and pets and dogs running all over the joint. What happens is freedom and contentment comes to a place where there was no freedom or contentment, right? And the story follows that arc for several of the stories. There are also, though, in this movie, there are people who don't believe their good news. They think maybe the check is a scam. Or maybe they think that it's made out to the wrong person. Or maybe this whole thing is a cruel joke. And you know what they do? In various of the episodes, they just take the check, they wad it up, and they throw it away and the, their lives are not changed. My favorite story, and I'm going to get off this movie in a second, but just if you ever see it on like Turner Classic Movies, you've got to watch it. My favorite takes all the five minutes, and it's about a prostitute named Violet. When she finds out that she's a millionaire, she immediately checks into a fancy hotel and climbs into a big, clean bed, pulls the covers up over herself, and goes to sleep alone. And as the scene fades, your heart just stops because you realize what's just happened. This extraordinary windfall liberates her from her dehumanizing situation. And that's the theme of this movie. It takes nobodies and by means of a great, unmerited, liberating gift, turns them into somebodies. That's also the theme in this passage that we've just read from Romans. Paul is methodically walking Christians at Rome through an explanation of God's amazing grace. And he wants them to know it's a gift, not something to be earned or an entitlement because of your good behavior. It's a hard lesson for us. Paul says this grace of great is so this grace uh, this gift of grace is so great it can only be claimed by faith. And between the lines of this text, Paul is pondering many of the same questions that this movie raises. <coughs> what will we do with this gift? Can we accept it by faith and experience the freedom of a transformed life? <coughs> or will we question it and doubt it and worry it with logic and wind up? throwing it away. 
Like the movie, Paul also uses a story to help his readers understand how grace and faith work hand in hand. He takes his readers back to the moment when God called Abraham into relationship. And that's a big part of it. God is calling Abraham into relationship and promised to bless Abraham and his descendants. But it would be no stretch to say that this the story of Abraham and the religion that grows out of this story is a big source of trouble in the Roman church. Because there are still some old school believers there who have this idea that you can't become a Christian unless you go through Judaism. So have you heard this before? There, are some, there were some Christians in the early church who thought that in order to be saved you had to come in what they would say under the law and earn your right as a Jewish believer, and then you could be lifted above the law as a Christian convert. Now, if you're a Gentile, that's asking quite a lot. We won't go into how much that's asking, but you, some of you know. It involves surgery for the men. <laughs> and as Emily pointed out last week in her sermon, some of the people in the Roman church have just been so conditioned by this legalistic tradition that they can't imagine grace working any other way. It just doesn't make sense to them. So Paul's task involves moving the promise of God's grace out of a socially and ethically, ethically and religiously normative framework to blow it open so that grace can, be, can exist and be offered to everyone. Are you with me? He's got to change the paradigm here. And so Paul starts by reminding his readers that Abraham's story starts with faith. He quotes a text from Genesis that says, Abraham had faith in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God doesn't choose Abraham because he's special. The special part of Abraham's story comes after God chooses him. When God meets Abraham, he and his wife, Sarah, they've done a little better than others, maybe not as well as some others, but they've been moving around, they've had a kind of a rootless existence, and now they are at the end of their lives and they have no children. When they die, they will be forgotten. And it's in this twilight hour that God comes into Abraham's story and makes this big promise. Not only are you going to have a child, but through this child, you're going to give birth to a new nation. I just don't know what I'd do if God came in like that. <laughs> Abraham's 100 years old, Sarah's 80. All right, I'm 50, and I'm not even sure what I would do with that if God said I was going to have a child, right? <laughs> God is going to bless them, and I'm sure somewhere in the back of Abraham's mind, he thinks this is just crazy. When he tells Sarah, what does she do? Who knows what Sarah does? She laughs. Sarah just laughs out loud, and who can blame her? Because this is crazy. This promise does sound crazy. It's every bit as nuts as me standing up here and saying, guess what, this afternoon, somebody's going to knock on your door and hand you a million bucks. You'd all nod politely at me and then just go, oh, I don't know what he was smoking before he got up there, because these are not the sorts of things, these kind of things only happen where? In the movies. That's right. So Paul is trying to get us into a situation where we can understand what's for us through the story of Abraham, and he wants us to see this as Abraham's if I had a million moments. Abraham knows he hasn't earned God's promise. If he deserved this, Paul says, Abraham would have reason to brag about it. If God told Abraham, okay, here's the deal. You work real hard and you live real good, and if you really prove yourself, I'll reward you with a child. 
and you know, I'll give you a prize for your good behavior. If it had gone that way, then it would have been to Abraham's credit for what he did, not for what God wanted to do to, for, and through Abraham. Are we clear? It would have been Abraham's success story and not God's. And if you don't know this about God, I want you to get a hold of this, because this will help you in the future. God's not really happy about sharing God's success with anybody else. All right? God asks praise. God wants praise. And so the, God sets this story up in such a way that when we look at it, we have to say, nobody but God could have done this for Abraham. Am I making sense? Good. No, so this is Abraham's moment, and in the middle of it all, God, Paul says, you know what, you don't need, if you look at this story, you would say, well, I need to behave like Abraham. I just need to try to act like Abraham. It's not about your actions. You need to be like Abraham, receptive to God's promise for what God wants to do in your life through grace. Staying with me? All right. Abraham had faith in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is accounting language that Paul's using here. He's looking at this situation like it's a ledger, and instead of putting Abraham's worth in the column, he puts Abraham's faith. It is counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith is what goes in the plus column. Since no human is worthy of grace, God justifies Abraham. This means God makes him worthy. Justification. God makes Abraham worthy. And God makes Abraham worthy for no other reason than Abraham believes God can make him worthy. Do you hear that? That's a tough sentence. God makes him <coughs> worthy because he believes God can make him worthy. So Paul's reversing this dynamic. And it's very important because in ancient times and in ancient religions, religion was all about appeasing the gods. All right? What happened when, when there was no rain, when there was an earthquake, when there was a fire? Everybody wondered what had they done to deserve this. And they all were worshiping God. God, please be nice. Because if you made your God happy, then God would make you happy. You know, y'all know folks, even in this late modern era, you know folks that believe that? We gotta live if you live right. They, those things you say, you live right, heaven belongs to you. And Paul's saying, this is backwards. This is backwards. You, good behavior does not bring about grace. Grace brings about good behavior. How's that? Does that throw you for a little bit? In the book of James, James tells Abraham's story, and he quotes the same scripture that Paul uses. He says, Abraham believed God, and God regarded him as righteous, but what is more, Abraham was called God's friend. And I love that part of it. So you see that a person is shown to be righteous through faithful actions, and not through faith alone. Here's how I like to think about it. God's grace changes our self-image. We're no longer strangers to God. We're friends to God. And that raises a big question. How should a friend of God behave? Later in Romans, Paul asks, so what are we going to say? Should we continue sinning so grace can multiply? Absolutely not. Accepting the grace of God and the friendship with God that grows out of that changes the way that we see ourselves and it changes the way we behave. Since God makes us worthy and calls us into relationship, we then honor God's grace with worthy lives. 
First comes acceptance of grace, grace through faith, and then comes faithful living that testifies to how grace has changed our life. And I'm belaboring the point. I can tell by the looks on your face. And some of you folks have already checked out and said, oh, I've heard this my whole life. Oh, I went to catechism. I've heard it. I know justified by faith through grace. And I know salvation is free. And I need all you have to do is believe. We've got a million cliches. We just zip this idea up and we package it and we hand it to them. You got it good. But do we really get it? Do we really, have we really just taken this miracle of grace out of its packaging and held it in our hands for a while to feel what this is about? This idea is very hard for us, that God would do amazing things for us because it's countercultural. It is radically countercultural to think that God would be gracious to us through none of our own doing. Vic, you almost preached this section of the sermon for me. I appreciate that. <laughs> we live in a meritocracy, people. Everything we do, day in and day out, is consumed with earning and competing and proving. Have I triggered a list for some of you? Some of you are already trying to get in front of me. Now he's going to do the list, right? Okay, let's do it. You get into school, you've got to get good grades. You've got to get in good grades. Why? So you can get into a good college. Why do you have to get into a good college? So you can get a good job. job. And why do you need to get a good job? So you can get nice things and make mom and dad happy and proud, make your neighbors fear you and respect you, right? Uh, that's what that bigger car in the driveway is about. It's about instilling fear. Don't mess with me. I'm driving a Lexus. Alright? That's where all this foolishness comes from. And it's all, everything can be drilled down to trying to prove our worth. And we are so inculcated with this idea from such an early age, we think that's how the world works. And I would lie to you if I tried to tell you differently. That's how the world works. That is how the world works. But so often we can settle for those lists and not lists and not realize how complicated this thing can get, how quickly the way the world works can become oppressive. And I'll tell you a quick story. When I got the invitation to my 10th high school anniversary, uh, high school reunion, I just looked at it and I threw it away. Just threw it away. There wasn't a chance in hell I was going to that. <laughs> Now, not for reasons you might think. I was not too cool for school. In fact, the opposite was true. My class had voted me the most likely to succeed. We need to get rid of all that stuff because it just creates uncrazy high pressure on people. But I was voted the most likely to succeed, and as a consequence, 10 years out, I was living in Los Angeles, and I was not a success. I had gone to Northwestern University, Sort of against my parents' will, they wanted me to go to a little Bible college in Missouri. I was too smart for that. I was going to go to Northwestern. I created all kinds of financial pressures on my parents, pressures on myself. I got to school where I was around a whole bunch of rich kids who dressed differently and talked differently and acted differently. And there I was in the middle of this sort of desert, and I hit a wall in my third year, and I just walked away. And I moved to Los Angeles. Why, I don't know. But I moved to Los Angeles. And there I was, and 10 years out of my high school graduation, I was working as, the sec as a secretary in a graphics firm. I hadn't saved enough money in 10 years to buy a car. I was living in Los Angeles without a car. That doesn't mean anything in Chicago. And it's everything in Los Angeles. I was there without a car. And sometimes the only thing between me and starvation was a half jar of peanut butter 
and a box of saltines. And I am not lying. There were times I said grace over that. I was struggling and there was no way I was going to get, try to scrounge up the money or ask my parents for money to get on a plane and go back to a high school reunion where the last time I saw those folks, I was there most likely to succeed. And what I missed, what I missed was that those people were my friends. They understood what life was like. They didn't have it any easier than I. Maybe their lives, they might have got a little bit further ahead, but they wanted me to be there not my success, and the way that this world works conditions us so that we allow our success and what we've been able to earn and what we've been able to prove and everything that we've been able to attest and claim about ourselves to define us, and we get lost in the process. But that's not how God works. God has fixed this thing so there's nothing we can do or say to prove that we're worthy. And so we need to be mighty glad about that because that's liberating for us. When there's nothing we can do to be worthy, then we have no choice but to tell God, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you because now I'm like everybody else in the world. I don't care everything that the teacher said. I don't care what my IQ numbers are. I don't care where I grew up. None of that matters because I need grace like everybody else. And God, I thank you for your grace. If, the, if it depended on me, I would just be SOL, people. I would just be SOL. So would you. There's not a day that goes by that we don't fall short in some way. There are days when we snap when we should be stretching. There are days when we, uh, we take the low road by just by, we choose to take the low road, when we should be reaching higher. There are days when we withhold the very things God has given us to give to others. Not a day goes by that our eyes should not open and the first words out of our mouth should be, God, I thank you for your grace. And every night when we go to sleep, the last words out of our mouth should be, God, I thank you for your grace. Because if it wasn't for the grace of God, maybe you'd all be fine. I don't know where I'd be. I don't know where I'd be. Anne Lamott, she captures this amazing miracle perfectly when she says, I do not at all understand the mystery of grace. I do not at all understand the mystery of grace. Only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. Amen. God stepped into Abraham's story and met him where he was, but God did not leave him there. He didn't say, there could be a great nation in you, you just kind of got to work out this birth thing. God moved Abraham toward where God wanted him to go. And God has stepped into our stories, into your story, and your story, and your story, and my story, and met us where we are. And God is not going to leave us there. God wants to move us out of our insecurities and out of our doubts and out of this sort of rat race that we've allowed to control our lives, out of this wasteland of trying to prove we're good enough and we're smart enough and we're worthy to deserve God's friendship. God alone makes us worthy. And we have to believe that. And then we have to live by that. Anthony Brown in Group Therapy has just released a new song that I'm sure a lot of you have heard. I've got it on my iPad, and I have to be careful where I listen to it because I do most of my iPad iPod, right? I always get those two confused. <laughs> There's a story behind that, I'll tell you. I've got it on my eye every 
there. <laughs> if I'm on an airplane, I have to like skip over it because the song, I, I have a physiological response to this song. It either makes me want to cry or else it makes me want to shout. And I can't know which one it is <laughs> until it hits me. And I'm never quite sure, am I just going to jump up on this airplane and start running up and down the aisle? If you've not heard it, you've just got to run right out and get it. And it says, you thought I was worth saving. So you came and you changed my life. You thought I was worth keeping. So you cleaned me up inside. And here's the killer. You thought I was to die for. So you sacrificed your life. So I could be free. So I could be whole. So I could tell everyone I know. You thought I was worth saving. Worth, are you worth saving? you got to know that. You're worth saving every day. God knocks at our door with this priceless gift of grace, and if we try to make sense of it, we'll just throw it away. It does not make sense. But if we accept it by faith, the freedom it brings will be ours. You're a friend of God. You are a friend of God. God calls you friend. So just be like that feisty old grandmother in the movie. If you're in oppressive situations, just let God's grace overtake you and know that you can come out of that. You're, no one can steal your joy because God has been gracious to you. And what God is doing in you is going to bring you through that. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. Mm. Where you are right now is not where your story ends. God has met you there. And grace is not going to leave you where you are. Be like the prostitute in the movie. Allow this magnificent gift to raise you out of dehumanizing situations. You can just do that by understanding that where people want to see you and where you are and where God sees you, two different places. Be like Abraham. Just trust God to make you worthy. Because you are worthy. God has called you friend. The check is good. The check is good. Don't doubt it. Don't throw it away. The check is good. Take it to the bank. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for your grace. Oh God, thank you for your grace. God, thank you for bringing before us this understanding that it's not what we earn and it's not what we deserve and it's not what we have to do. There is no qualification. You have justified us and made us worthy to inherit this magnificent gift that you offer to all who believe. Now work on faith. Get us out of our logical minds so that we can get into a mind of belief and know that your word is true and your promises are true. And then allow that grace to get inside us and change our lives day by day, moment by moment. We hear you knocking at the door. And we're opening it and we're telling you to come in. We bless your name. And we ask that this word will continue to grow in us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.